This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. You know, when I was going through hard times in my life where I really felt like I didn't have anywhere to turn, I didn't, you know, I felt clamped down on ideas. I think what was really happening to me was that, and this is going to sound kind of corny, but my heart was not talking to my mind. The mind is what sees the world and comes up with ideas and solutions, but it's the heart that sort of tells you you're moving in the right direction or you're moving in the wrong direction. You know how like you have an idea, but ah, it doesn't feel right. Oh, this is a, everybody's telling you this is a great opportunity, but you know what? Something feels off. And it's when the heart and the mind really connect that I know I'm going in the right direction, that I'm about to not only flourish, but thrive. And it was such a pleasure to talk to this next guest, Mark Devine, ex-Navy SEAL, wrote a great new book called Staring Down the Wolf. And the wolf, obviously, is the fears and the obstacles we often encounter during the way. And I know you can say to yourself, well, a lot of people have written about facing fear and being resilient and, you know, writing about obstacles. But... Mark has a very special perspective. He's a very successful entrepreneur. He's a martial arts expert. But most of all, we all go through hardships. Doesn't matter whether you're in the middle of an actual physical battlefield or whether you're simply trying to support your family and the world seems against you. Talking about the specific ways Mark introduced his heart and his mind so that he can go on the path which he's on now, the path of helping people, the path of successful entrepreneurship, the path of successful creativity. This is really so important to all of us, so important to me. I hope you enjoy uh, listening to Mark as much as I enjoyed talking to him. As always, give me feedback. Let me know what you think. Also, text me questions that I will answer on this podcast at 203-590-8607. And now, here's Mark Devine. Once again, friend of the podcast, Mark Devine, welcome on the show. (laughs) Thank you, James. Fantastic. You're the author of the excellent book, Staring Down the Wolf, Seven Leadership Commitments That Forge Elite Teams. But I don't, I don't know if that accurately describes the book, and I'll, I'll explain why in a second. I, this is an excellent book for anybody to read, particularly in difficult times, which we're in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and basically, you're a retired Navy SEAL officer. You have uh, the organization SEAL Fit and Unbeatable Mind. You have trained thousands of aspiring military special operators and business leaders, founder and CEO of Courage Foundation, where your team helps heal veterans afflicted with post-traumatic stress. Mark, we're all going through post-traumatic stress right now, That's like as a sure. society. Yes. Actually, we're just getting stressed. I don't think we've gotten to the post-traumatic part yet because <laughs> we're not through it, right? So everyone's just, you know, in, in absolute fear and their sympathetic nervous systems are, are just getting hammered and their minds are just racing out of control. And people are making, you know, inferior decisions as a result. Yeah, and it seems like from the beginning this has happened, but everything has just kept escalating and escalating and escalating. Like in the beginning, there was first the fears like, oh no, should I go outside? What's Mm -hmm. this virus all about? And so there was this fear from that. 
then every day there were more and more restrictions and we mm -hmm. thought okay this is it this is it but then there would be the next letter of, re of restrictions until there was a total lockdown mm -hmm. and then as we stopped getting locked down it became i felt like it became very partisan which was disappointing to me like instead yeah, of being accurate news about medicines and vaccines and rise of new deaths or new cases or new hospitalizations it was just like you know why is it the case that one set of states became more locked down than other sets of states mm -hmm. with all the same data. Mm -hmm. Now there's the protests, which, you know, on the one hand, and I try to explain this to my daughters, there's peaceful protests, there's looters, and there's rioters, but, mm -hmm. and they're different. And I even spoke mm -hmm. to Brooklyn Pro President Eric Adams, among others, who agreed with me. This is a guy who spent 22 years on the police force. He's an African-American. He's been protesting, but he even told me we've identified people who are not peaceful protesters who are in it mm -hmm. to loot or in it to cause chaos. And we've identified them, but my kids still don't understand peaceful protest doesn't mean the same thing as killing people who get in the way of rioting. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, now that also we've been reopening every day on the news, I'm seeing there's a surge in cases, but if I ask the question, but has there been a surge in testing, which would mean, of course, there's a surge in testing. Of course. Right? What are other indicators that might be useful? Like, are there daily new deaths rising? Is the daily new hospitalizations rising? Because I'm not seeing it. Nobody answers. They just think I'm, um, they just say, you must be some pro-Trump, you know, yeah. alt-right Nazi. Conspiracy theorist, right? Right. And like, I don't, you're not even allowed to speak anymore, which is, you know, I felt like even six months ago, you were allowed to say things, but you're right. not even allowed to ask the questions. Right. But if you don't ask the questions, then they say silence is violence. Right. And I know. It's a it's a double bind, isn't it? Like you can't you can't speak out. Like everyone was like, "Hey, Mark, are you going to do like have a podcast guest around uh, you know Black Lives Matter and this whole uh, thing and uh, that's going on?" And I was like, "Uh, I'm not sure." I feel safe doing that. <laughs> I'm afraid of what will come out of my mouth, even though I'm, I'm like, I, I'm, I think it was absolutely tragic. And I believe there is, I believe there's racism across the world, right? It's not, you know, it's not something that is limited to Western white people. And if I say that, you know, as a public statement, people are like, wait a minute, but it's true. Racism, you know, it stems from fear and separation. And that's 85% yeah. of the world is operating out of a vibrational level of fear and separation. So of course you're going to have that. And the systemic attempts to deal with it have been constructed from that same paradigm. And so it's actually going to make it worse. It's like force on force. Yeah. And, and, and you know, then I see, I see all the, uh, I, I feel like if you try, like, like no matter what you do, depending on who you are, you're classified as, yeah, Either something. a racist or not a racist. First off, I never try to convince anybody of anything because why should I be obligated right. to convince other individuals of something? Yeah, that something just comes off as righteousness, right? And I think it's better to look for truths in between everyone's opinion. So, so like, like my my mo is to think about this, to research it, to write thoughts down, and then if I don't have a voice or a platform for a situation, I send to people who do, and if they respond, great. If they don't, fine. Maybe they have other solutions or maybe I miss something. But, and then I try to educate my my family and 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 also the listeners. Like I try mm -hmm. to bring on, you know, people from different walks of life who who maybe can explain 
the situation from their perspective and I get a, an opportunity to ask questions. But now I'm just, it's, it's, we're kind of being battled on all sides. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, you see Nancy Pelosi and I have nothing against her. I've, I actually have been a Democrat. All, I've never voted really, but I've been <laughs> democratic leanings all my life. And, right. but I'm also for some conservative policies. There's no reason to respond to just one menu of beliefs and believe a hundred percent of them. And I even had the libertarian candidate for vice president on, but, uh, I just feel battled on all sides and it's starting that I'm starting to feel the stress from this, mm-hmm. you know, because it's so different from the life we were all living just three months ago. It's a, it's incredible how fast it's escalated. And I think it's going to get worse. And you know, the fact that it's an election year, and there's this, I think this is just a massive power play, massive power play being played out at, um, at all levels. And, and it's more than just trying to bring Trump down. I, mean, I think it's really to, to transform the nature of government in a way that um, it was much more socialistic and maybe even you know, beyond that. But you know, consider, you said earlier, there, it's very wise. There is a big distinct difference between a peaceful protest for an outrageous, heinous act. Well, we don't know anything about the background of why those two were having, you know, why, why the, the police officer and Floyd, you know, were involved in that. Somebody does, but we don't. But it doesn't matter. It was a heinous act, and it was horrific to watch, and, you know, right. it brought tears and, to and my eyes. And eye. nobody and feels, Everybody feels that, and everyone stands, that everyone who's sane stands in solidarity with those who were, who were suffering from that. And... I totally applaud, you know, our right to stand up and peacefully say, hey, this is wrong. Now is the time to do something about it. I don't need another pork-laden bill thrown at it. I need a serious discussion about what's going on here. But then, you know, you're going to have just the idiots capitalized on that for looting. But it's the third part you mentioned that scares me because most of the violent people are bought and paid for for political gain. That's my opinion. But I think there's a lot of evidence to back that up. I don't know if you have any um, thoughts on that. Yeah, well, well, like in New York City, there was a woman and a man arrested for throwing a Molotov cocktail at a police cruiser. Right. And um, this is where... Like, so who, who the, happens to just have a Molotov cocktail hanging around in their car, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, well, well, I didn't know that. I thought maybe it's easy to make a Molotov cocktail, no. but but Eric Adams, the, the Brooklyn Borough President, he's running for mayor of New York City next year. Uh, he uh, explained to me, it's not that easy to make a Molotov cocktail. He was in the police for 22 years. This is a serious thing. Like they, this was, and he said they were, there were cars being planted around the, they already knew this. There were cars being planted around the city so that the looters or, or whoever this extreme organization is could distract the police two blocks away, loot over here, cause chaos over here. And then they have cars placed earlier during the day that they could escape it. So the police have already identified this. It's they mm-hmm. for some reason it's not as much in the news. I've also seen this vaguely in the news because the news wants to support the fear, and I think they support that agenda too. Mass media, I don't know. I mean, anything beyond saying that kind of verges into conspiracy speak, and I don't play in that realm. But I just think that it's the mindset. They don't want to expose those things because I don't think they feel like it's going to benefit them, right? Yeah. It's more beneficial to have the fear, to have the chaos, maybe to have regime change, and then they can pat themselves on the back and say, okay, good job. All of our work has paid off. But um, to expose, uh, here's a great, another a- anecdotal example. M- one of the um, women who works for me said that 
her nephew or something was on, you know, they, they have like these little apps. And so she got the alert and her job, and she's got the alert to go get paid to join the riots. And her job was to smash windows. And so she went and, and started smashing windows just because that's what her marching orders were. And her wait, she, she got, she got an alert somehow on text or yeah, I think like either, Slack either or text Telegram. or Slack, right? Whatever, you know, whatever me- media message they use, Telegram. How do they know to alert her? Because she had signed up, right? So, okay. I don't know. Maybe she was a protester, a peaceful protester, and somehow she got flagged or tagged or signed some signed something, right? And then they got her, and then now she gets drawn into this thing. I don't know if it's Antifa or any of these organizations could be the behind it. So she gets the alert to go to the protest, and now her job is to agitate with a sledgehammer and to break glass, store windows, cars, and her mother or grandmother sees her on TV and calls the cops. <laughs> right? And so now she gets rolled up. I don't know what her fate was after that, but her grandmother dimed her out. And that's how my, uh, my, you know, my coworker found out about it. And I was like, well, that's the first time I've had direct experiential evidence of this idea that these agitators, violent protesters are bought and paid for, for political gain. And they've yeah, got and it so- all mapped out, right? They've got it all mapped out. In fact, one more piece. There was an organization that was hired for influence operations in Afghanistan by the U.S. government. And these guys would do similar things like to, to stage, stage riots or protests, all to influence public opinion. And that same company, it's a private company, was hired in 2016 by one of the major, one of the two major parties. I don't want to say which one. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, of course. And, uh, uh, you know, and then there, I do feel there's a, a, a group in the middle that is just angry and they're looting because you know during protests there's often looting and particularly yeah, yeah. it's time to lot. get some free stuff <laughs> right and then and then you know the, the other thing that disturbs me is like the, I, the other day i posted something about uh, hypocrisy and i was like you know my my wife when she li- my wife lived in africa for three years and she and her family took hydroxychloroquine every single day to, as a prophylaxis against mm-hmm. getting malaria. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you know, in, in Africa, you would often take chloroquine, but in some areas of Africa, there's resistance from malaria with chloroquine. So they took hydroxychloroquine. Mm-hmm. So I, but the hypocrisy was she would tweet about that and get the tweets censored. But meanwhile, there's all these snuff videos on social media of the St. Louis cop, 77 year old, David Dornan, an, mm-hmm. an African-American who responded to, um, you know, there was looting at a pawn shop. And you see this six-minute video. I have to admit, I watched the video. You see this six-minute video of him breathing out his last breaths. This guy is just screaming, all I wanted was some TVs, man. I'm sorry. Like, all I wanted was some TVs. So that's all over Twitter. My kids could see it. Your kids could see mm. it. And I don't know if you remember when we were kids, there was a, a video called Faces of Death that I couldn't oh, yeah. even get a hold of. It was considered so traumatizing. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> and this is worse now. I know. And that stuff is not censored on, on any social media. But if I you know. mention hydroxychloroquine, even if you just are just stating your own experience with it, you're censored. The censorship has gone off the charts. I mean, we just literally ripped up the Constitution in the last few months, it seems like. Yeah, and, and, and at the same time, though, I mean, a private company is allowed to censor, although Twitter is sort of, you know, in that gray area where it's so public, it's hard mm-hmm. to 
uh, say what's censorship and, and I mean, what's freedom of speech and what isn't. But still, even by their standards, if they say one thing violates their terms of standards and another thing doesn't, it seems like snuff videos don't violate their terms of standards. But mentioning a legit medicine that's been around for 60 years is in, in, you know, in the UN's list of top 12 uh, important medicines. Uh, I know. Well, here, here's another one. There was a documentary someone sent me, and, I, and um, I go to click on it, and it had already been taken down. And so, so I said, hey, this isn't even here. And they said, oh, oh, let me look. And they found it on Vimeo. And it was titled Plandemic. And I watched it. I thought it was actually very interesting. I don't know the veracity of the, everything. But it was basically about how, you know, academia and big pharma have been, become so corrupt because of the money flows. that They're all in bed together. And how uh, Dr. Fauci was somehow involved in profiting off of, off of this whole thing. Right, not just him, but there are people who are profiting off of COVID nineteen, and so it, it, it was obviously a, a conspiracy theory. But the woman who was doing the documentary and the person interviewing her had been uh, fired for trying to expose, you know, this this corruption and hypocrisy. And I can't remember. I think it had to do with the um, another pandemic. I'd have to go back and watch it. At any rate, my point was, it was a documentary. Any other time in history, everyone would be like, "Hey, that's interesting. Uh, maybe I'll pick up a valuable piece of information." And, uh, and then leave it at that. But now it's being censored. So why, why, like why? I'll take their point of view. Uh, let's just say everything in that documentary was wrong, was a lie, was staged. Let's say the women being interviewed or the women describing it were criminals or had other serious issues in their record. Okay, but still, the Michael Jackson documentary will air on HBO and there will people who say the same thing about right. those people or not. The people are on both sides. That's what discussion and discourse is about. Like I haven't watched Plandemic because I looked into the background of the person. I figured, okay, I just don't even want to get involved. It'll either make me angry in one way or the other and I yeah. don't want to do yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but still discourse is the way ideas are born. Like when everybody's locked down and not allowed to gather with their friends, you know, like, like you're not allowed to get together with people. Uh, you, there's a, there's a lack of discourse and there's a lack of people to say, Hey, you, you know, like my daughter comes up to me and I don't mean to put her on the spot. I have four daughters, so it's okay. <laughs> they, they, they won't know which one I'm talking about. Uh, she said, and she, but she asked a legitimate question, which is that Martin Luther King said people riot because they feel unheard. Mm -hmm. So I, do my due diligence and I read every one of Martin Luther King's speeches from the 1950s on. And I find the speeches he wrote in Montgomery in 1956, where he talks about how nonviolence is, is uh, nonviolence and love are the key and mm -hmm. violence will never do anything other than create chaos for future generations. And, you know, he's talking about an outcome if you just, you know, in a totalitarian state, if you just keep, uh, if you never ever listen to anybody, there might be, he's not condoning rioting. He's just saying, Hey, this is why we're doing a peaceful protest is to avoid, right. you know, rioting so that hopefully people could listen to us now. And, but we've just gone straight into looting and, and we've told our kids that it's, or I shouldn't say we, but our, our kids have been told that they should justify this. But anyway, my, my point is with all of this, I've, been getting more stressed. Originally, mm -hmm. I tried to create a, a, a sense of calm, a sense of hope. I would look at the coronavirus data and try to explain it to people so they wouldn't take the extremes of the media. 
But now it's just like so much anger and I understand the anger, but it's so much that it's, 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 it's making, you know, the leaders of the country dress in, mm-hmm. you know, Kente cloths. They don't understand the history of those cloths either, <laughs> by the way. My, my wife lived in Ghana and she knew right away. She said, those are the cloths that were worn by the, the people selling the slaves mm-hmm. in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Like it's not a pro African American garb that these people are wearing. But anyway, how do I deal with my stress? <laughs> hey, that was the longest question I think I've ever gotten in my life. That was awesome. I'm sorry about that. It was like a 15-minute question. <laughs> 15 <minute> question. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll, I can tell you how I deal with it. First off, well, I'm fortunate because I rarely, 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 rarely delve into, you know, like public events on, you know, in my work at podcasting or whatever. This is one of the few times because it's it's important. So I don't watch uh, news. I do not have a TV in my house. Uh, I'm the same way, yeah, by the way. I do not watch I, I don't watch news. I don't read news. But during this time, for the first time in since 2010, I have started reading news. Yeah, yeah. I, I try to scan headlines. I think I told you this when I uh, interviewed you, and I play kind of opposite day with the headlines. So I scan the headline and say, what's the exact opposite? And the truth is somewhere in between. So that kind of relieves That's a little smart. bit of stress. And then, you know, my, my daily practice begins every morning with my box breathing, which is an arousal control and a de-stressing practice. Which you describe uh, in the book, by the way. It's, yeah. uh, 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 you know, y- y- you describe it. It's, I have it bookmarked, but it's, it's very similar to like yoga, pranayama, breathing. Yeah, and, and- but the way it's done, it's, it's a measured breath. So, you know, it's going to get your heart rate into a coherence. It's going to get your brain waves down into that calmer kind of uh, high alpha, low beta range. And um, it brings your breathing rate down to four to five breaths per minute. If you practice this every day, and it doesn't take too long, let's say 90 days of practice, um, longer for some people if they've had really dysfunctional breathing patterns, which, by the way, most people have or do. But uh, it gets that, that becomes the new normal. So here, here's what happens, James. If you're going through your day and you're breathing through your nostrils, you're activating your diaphragm, you're taking a full diaphragmatic breath, five count in, a hold for a few moments, five count out, hold for a few moments, you're going to be doing about five to six breaths per minute, which is optimal for your health, both mentally and physically, physiologically. And you're constantly massaging the vagus nerve, which is triggering the parasympathetic nervous system, which is rest or digest. Every time you read that news feed, you're triggering sympathetic nervous system, bam, you know, you're going into fight or flight. Then you take a nice few deep breaths, you trigger parasympathetic, you come right back. And so you end up um, going through your day with a much more measured, balanced, you know, calm body-mind state. And um, anytime you feel like the sympathetic is getting the best of you, um, what I do is just pause and do it more as a practice, like a spot drill. So I'll just like stop what I'm doing. I'll take five or 10 deep breaths and each breath, I'll breathe in light and I'll breathe out fear, you know, or I'll breathe in courage and I'll breathe out fear or something like that. And I'll just clear my mind. So it's kind of like a breath mindfulness practice and it's just super calming. And then you realize anytime you do this, you can change your perspective. You step out of the fear and look beyond that. And, and that's what, you know, when I look beyond that, what I see is, oh yeah, this is, uh, there's a few perspectives you could take. One is this is a spiritual battle that's been going on for since the beginning of man, right? And 
Um, I don't have to engage in that at the material level. That's a beautiful perspective to have. You know, be on the side of right and light instead of the fear and the, you know, the death. Then I can also look at it from the perspective of, you know, humanity is stuck in ego and fear, any, you know, negative energies. And they have been that way since the beginning of time, but we're in a transition right now. We're in a transition. Uh, one of my favorite philosophers, authors was uh, Dr. David Hawkins. He passed away in 2014, I think. He was knighted by the Queen of England for his work, by the way. And through kinesiologic muscle testing, um, he learned that the human body can discern degrees of truth. The lowest level of truth, the weakest that the human being is, is shame. The highest level of truth is universal love. And he scaled it, zero to a thousand. And individuals like uh, Jesus and the Buddha, you know, the great avatars and, and spiritual leaders tested you know, at or near a thousand. And the individual who's been shamed and on the verge of death and, or you know, the people who are you know, throwing Molotov cocktails, they test anywhere from 20 to 100. Anything, any energy below 200 is negative and 200 is a demarcation line. So the collective consciousness, this is his research, the collective consciousness of America shifted from 197 to 207 back in 1989. He doesn't posit why this happened, but it was a sea change shift from, from abject, totally negative, fear-based, and you know, of course you see all the, you know, the history, you know, vast history of violence um, across the world you know, for thousands of years, and suddenly we shifted to positive because anything above 200 is it, we're getting into courage and integrity and then it gets into acceptance and forgiveness and then love you know could it be related to the cold war ending it it, it could be that you know or that could have been a response to that mm -hmm. um it could have you know who knows right it's it's a collective consciousness the evolution of human the human being you know from homo sapien to what's next is an evolution of consciousness and consciousness evolves like it's not hierarchical, but toward more truth. And you can even insert the word love for truth toward more acceptance, toward more um, inclusion. But still, we've got a long way to go. And so the whole world is transitioning because all the institutions that were built, that we're living with today, were built out of the energy of fear, out of the energy of ego. So, you know, the fear-based states are all egoic and you start to transition into more uh, uh, ethnocentrism. And then where we're going to fast is a world-centric care and concern for all of humanity. But the old institutions, you know, there's going to be claw marks all over the place as they cling to the, you know, to their power structures. I don't care whether we're talking about corporations that are you know, soon disappearing because they're clinging to old ways or governmental systems, like you know, a police force that just won't admit that there might be a problem there, just clinging. At any rate, it's fascinating because I, that's a perspective. When I take that perspective, it brings me calm and I look at it and say, okay, uh, be prepared, but don't fear. And so I train every day to prepare. You know, I've, I've done that my whole life. Right? You, you know, the more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war. That's kind of the Navy SEAL mentality. So every day I, I train with my meditation, visualization. I train my martial arts. I train uh, physically, hardcore with my SEAL fit operator workouts. I spend about three hours a day uh, minimum wow. training. And that makes me feel really confident that I can handle any situation that comes and that through that training, I'm bleeding off all the stress physically, mentally, and emotionally.
Can I ask you a couple questions about that? Of course. I obviously do not train three hours a day. Um, <laughs> I, I do try to be physically healthy. Like I, tr I always try to sleep eight hours a day. I try to eat well, not overeat, eat healthy food. I try to move, make sure I'm, I'm moving. It doesn't mean working out in the gym necessarily, but it means I'm moving and, and strain myself at least at some point during the day, but not for three hours. And part of it is because I feel like three hours would be too much time for me. I feel like I'm addicted to relevance in the world, which takes away, to some extent, I'm realizing from focusing on my own health mm -hmm. and kind of the things immediately around me. I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, maybe um, my training plan sounds a little extreme for a lot of people, but uh, it makes sense to me. I'm a warrior and um, I train warriors and I train leaders to have a warrior mindset and uh, I must lead by example. Um, but the more I train, the more, and when I say train, I mean also practicing. And, and that's spread throughout the day, James. So, you know, 20 minutes in the morning of my box breathing practice and some imagery work. Okay, so 30 minutes total. There's 30 of those three hours. Then I come in and do my uh, seal fit operator workout, which is a minimum hour and a half of training. And I'm doing strength work. I'm doing high intensity interval training. I'm doing, you know, the myofascial release. I'm keeping my body, you know, I, I, I'm 56 years old, but I, you know, I got the physical what strength. What the hell? You're 56 years old? Yeah, I got the physical strength of a 22 year old Navy SEAL. And um, it's just because I train every day. And the human body is way, way more uh, competent and capable than people ever give it credit for. And I, I have a lot of examples of advanced yogis and martial arts who are in their 70s, 80s, 90s, who pretty much look exactly the way I do because they, they train every day. So that, when I, and so what I was going to say, James, is my training has led me to the profound insight that, in my opinion, a human being's whole purpose is to evolve himself, not just, you know, um, thinking differently, but evolving himself energetically, physically, mentally, emotionally, intuitionally, and spiritually integration, integrated in those five domains so that we can serve in a unique way uh, aligned with our, you know, our spiritual calling or the reason that we're on this planet. Now, those sound a lot like they line up with Eastern principles of yoga and Buddhism is because they do, but it's also been my own insight. In fact, I organized my unbeatable mind training around those two principles, self-mastery and service. And the more training I do, the more I recognize that all the decisions I make are profoundly better when I train that way, right? That, that, those three hours a day, profoundly better. And I make fewer decisions and I ask way better questions and I end up doing way less, but I do it way better, right? And so I don't, it, there's times where even with the three hours of training where I've, I'm sitting around going, boy, what do I do now? You know, and I'll pick up a book and read it <laughs> because I narrow it down to like my one most important target or two most important targets I'm going to do every day. I laser focus on them. And then, you know, I don't let the details, you know, clutter up my life. It's taken me a long time to get here. But, um, you know, I'm looking forward to where I can train for eight hours a day. <laughs> yeah, do you think, let me ask you this. Do you think you'll ever reach that point? Like in the sense that, and I'm being very kind of open here, but uh, I sort of feel like if I were to say to myself, you know, boy, I wish I could just 
read and play chess and work out and walk around eight hours a day, but then will, will I not work on as many creative activities that will get out into the world? Will people forget about me? Will I not have as many podcasts mm -hmm. to release? Like, will, will then, my, you know, and this is irrational. I know it's irrational intellectually, but then will my wife and kids respect me less? Mm -hmm. Like, is it possible to really make that switch from one hour or three hours a day to eight hours a day of doing what really fulfills you without thinking of the outside world at all? We'll see. But what I will say is that eventually it's like the yin and think of the yin and the yang symbol, right? One side is yin, that's the receptive. And I consider that the field of potential. The field of potential is lies inside of us. The other side is the yang, and that's the field of performance. That's getting things done. That's all the stuff you just talked about. Doing podcasts, being in service to your tribe, all that. The yin and the yang, um, when you start this work, so you could look at one, the yin side, the mastery is all about developing the inner domain so that I'm making, um, I'm thinking more clearly, I'm a, more aware, I'm more evolved, and eventually enlightened. And the yang side is my service, getting things done, but getting things done that are the right things to do and making sure I'm focusing on the right targets every day to really drive forward on my, my major initiative. So I'm not just firing like, a, you know, like in the movies, uh, automatic machine gun spraying across the wall, but I'm actually like, more like an Navy SEAL sniper, being extremely target focused. Over time, and this is more like the Zen, the Zen uh, master coming out in me, over time, you end up living right in the line between the yin and the yang. So that even while I'm training, I'm actually working also because that's where my best thinking comes from. And in between, you know, let's say the breathing and then you know, coming to the office to do the opwad, you know, I'm doing some correspondence and I'm making sure I'm preparing you know, for the uh, deep work that's to come. And, uh, and then you know, while I'm training you know, with my training partner, there might be some conversation, you know, about something that's important, you know, around our social media strategy or, um, you know, some of my uh, video content or something like that. So it all ends up kind of like weaving together into one spontaneous, really, really flow state period of time where sometimes you're, you know, walking on the beach and sometimes you're, uh, you know, you're recording a podcast and they become almost seamless. And, and ideally, your family is joining in on this. Otherwise, you, that part you know, could get tricky. But. Although, I guess, I mean, also with family, they could each have their own practices you know, that could right. be different. Right. And like they one could, person could walk on the beach. The other person right. could be practicing tap dancing. Who knows? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love how in each chapter of the book, you have these questions. You, you, know, you, ha you kind of describe, like you say, the seven leadership commitments. And then you have the skills that need to be developed, like you know, box breathing, visualization, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know, you talk about how do you, how you commit to challenge, commit to growth, mm -hmm. but I love just the exercises too, at the end of each chapter, cause it makes me, uh, think, and some of these, some of these challenges or questions that you ask yourself at the end of each chapter are, are questions that I, I think I like to live my life by. Mm -hmm. So for instance, in, in exercise five, uh, you talk about challenge, variety, and mentors. The first question, and this is such an important question for me that I ask myself this every day, how do you challenge yourself in uncomfortable ways? Mm -hmm. And the, 
what I'm asking is for people who are listening to this, they have their normal routine. Um, and now that routine has been disrupted. So I'll ask in the context of they're very unhappy that their routine has been disrupted. They're very unhappy with the onslaught of, of media that they're receiving. That's very uncomfortable and mm -hmm. maybe not a good challenge, but what are ways people can challenge themselves in uncomfortable ways right now? A lot of times people ask me, what podcasts do I listen to? And without hesitation, I always say the Jordan Harbinger show. Jordan has on the best guests, such interesting topics. He asks the right questions. Every question that I would ask, he asks. Recently had on Malcolm Gladwell, all about how we're so bad at reading the emotions of people. And we think we're good, but Malcolm Gladwell points out that's the reason why we're so bad. So he gives great techniques and tips. Such a great episode, such a great podcast. Malcolm Gladwell episode is episode 256. Go listen to the Jordan Harbinger show. What are ways people can challenge themselves in uncomfortable ways right now? Yeah. First of all, you don't grow without challenge, right? And challenge that is comfortable isn't challenge. So getting uncomfortable until you're comfortable with that discomfort equals growth. That's the path between when you're comfortable with a new level of discomfort equals growth. And what does growth mean? It means you have a new level of awareness around um, dealing with that discomfort, right? So you become inoculated to the stress that the former discomfort caused. And you also gain new perspectives on um, how to navigate that particular challenge, which then has a crossover effect for how you might navigate other challenges. And oh, by the way, James, humanity, life is about throwing challenges at us so that we can grow. And if we shirk from the challenges, then guess what? We get smacked down and then it's going to come at us again in another form. That's just human nature. So I like to think that we can organize or construct or curate challenges that allow us to go to the challenge so that we can close the gap there between the discomfort and what's now comfortable. And then we get to learn and grow on our own terms. So the smackdown isn't as painful. It won't, won't even come if I learn the lesson on my own terms. This principle is extraordinary. You know, in our organization, we do, and this back to your, your original actual question, we do physical challenges that you know are like really uncommon. Like one of my events that I run through SealFit is 50 hours of nonstop physical, mental, emotional team training, five zero, no sleep. And I was that's modeled after the Navy SEALs Hell Week. You know when I went through Hell Week in, gosh, 1990, uh, it was seven days of training, nonstop, cold, wet, sandy, miserable. Um, you know, just rubbed raw in all the wrong places and places you didn't even know you had places. And um, half the class quit. And you know what? On Friday, my boat crew and I got secured early because we were just able to stay present and just knock down one target at a time. And it was such a profoundly transformative experience to know that I can handle seven days, no sleep, around the clock training. That's to prepare Navy SEALs for the discomfort of combat when people are trying to take your head off. Well, guess what? What if you can do that as a civilian 
and come through that. And there's like the rest of your life, you'll know that you can handle pretty much anything, any crisis. And you also know that you, you, you know, the best way to do that is to be, you know, with the team, you know, to, to help others, you know, all the, all the lessons that come out of that. So that's one, maybe that's on the, the distant end, but we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people every year go through those programs and, and are transformed by them. I, I guess, Mark, like what, what, how I've kind of reframed this current crisis starting from the lockdown period is as kind of a, a it's kind of a crucible, right? Uncomfortable, right? And like every time I felt like, you know, I every time I felt ir- irrationally stressed or overstressed, I kind of reminded myself, look, everybody's going through this. So the challenge for me here is not necessarily to squash my stress, but to do things that would override the stress, sure. like, like service to others, or as corny as it sounds, feeling grateful, or you know spending time with my children and, and, and so on. So I always tried to recognize when I was, you know, feeling the stress that everyone else was feeling and then to do something to, sure. to counteract it. Yeah. I really like that. And you're right. We call this a crucible. A crucible is anything where you, you know, the pressure is turned up and, you know, when you enter that, you know, you're going to, you're going to have to transform or, or it's not going to go well. So you're right. We're undergoing a crucible now and it, it, it feels um, it feels different because everyone had gotten complacent. What I'm telling you or what I'm suggesting is that it's a mindset to think that A, things didn't used to change. They, they changed, just not as quickly and not maybe as violently. And B, that it wasn't important to um, develop resilience against stress, right? And so you can use this time right now to wake up to this, to the new reality, which has always been a reality, that the human condition is always about change. And that, you know, if you don't become resilient to that, then you're going to keep getting smacked down and the stress is going to continue to build. And that leads to ill health and imbalance and, and problems. So we can use this time to do that, to change. Yeah, no, I agree. And so there's this societal thing that it's making us all feel uncomfortable and that's something we can experience, and and be, just being aware. Oh, this is a this is a good opportunity for for training for for the future. That's great. What are some other just like things you can do in daily life that will make you uncomfortable? And obviously, each day or week it's going to be different. But what are some ways people could think about how can I put uncomfortable situations in my path yeah. so that I can train from them and, and get better from them? So there's some really s- simple ones. First off, you know. I believe that you know pretty much the first thing you do every morning, you should do something that challenges you, makes you feel good. So take a cold shower, as cold as possible, right? And, and that's nothing new. A lot of people have said, yeah, that, that makes sense. So do that every morning. Um, a lot of people are, are, were frustrated because they couldn't go to their gym or their yoga studio. And that's a bummer. But you know, I, we have this philosophy that wherever you are, there's your gym. So learn how to use your body and start implementing body weight training or grab, you know, buy a kettlebell. And a lot of people did this, like kettlebells and dumbbells got stripped really quickly and people re- refitted their home gyms. And that's a beautiful thing because I think a gymnasium or yoga studio is kind of a crutch and you get into a, a habituated pattern. So break those patterns and learn how to do yoga. You learn how to do, um, you know, high intensity interval training, training on your own and do it at home or buy a Pendleton, pen, whatever they are. One of those Peloton, yeah. Peloton bikes. So um, that's the second is train. The third is, and this is profound, I think um, it was for me, is that just to recognize how much 
time you spent just running around, distracting yourself with the habits that you had before. And I, like when, you, when we went into shutdown, I was immediately struck with just how much time that I spent you know, driving to and from Aikido, driving to and from the yoga studio, driving to and from work, driving, you know, running around to the store here and there and the other places. And now you don't have to do that. So with that time, are you just filling it back up, right, with other useless stuff? Or can you take that time and do something that's going to make you uncomfortable educationally or academically or learning, right? So picking up that new skill. And I think a lot of people have done that as well. So I'm, I'm preaching to the choir probably to some listeners. It's like use that time strategically to develop new skills because, you know, the world is obviously changing fast and you've talked about this endlessly on your podcast. Like what skills can you accrue that are going to be more, make you more relevant for the future? And that's uncomfortable. And then the other piece is related to that is with all that distraction, what were you avoiding with your most um, trusted relationships? What conversations were you avoiding? And um, how were you mm. causing those conversations to be, you know, kind of surface level, transactional, or just you're just ignoring, you were ignorant of some of the tensions that had bubbled, you know, beneath the surface. So we have taken time, both in my family and, um, and at work, to really work on our communication and to be a more authentic, more transparent uh, check our egos and to have those, you know, you could call them crucial conversations, although I believe that's a trademark for a program and it's a great program. <laughs> I've been to it. I will steal it. Yeah, it's a great. Have those crucial conversations that, you know, that we avoid. And with that, there's growth because, you know, we tend to avoid those hard emotional conversations. I talk a lot about that in the book. In fact, the book is like, as you probably noticed, James, it's like two part, part one part is all these glorious stories of, of some amazing special ops leaders exemplifying these seven leadership commitments. And the other- Oh, I thought it was an autobiography. And, yeah, no, I'm just, yeah, and the I'm other just part was my screw-ups. Like, how did I fall on my sword, you know, and have to learn the hard way, particularly in business ventures? I make the claim that leading a team in the civilian world is much, much harder than leading an elite special ops team. And I had to learn that the hard way. I mean, I don't know what it's like to deal with a special ops team, but I know for myself, I've been an entrepreneur on and off since 1995, uh, maybe even a little before then, but it's, it's not a pleasant thing. It's, it's hard not a work. pleasant thing yeah. to, uh, yeah, it's hard work because, and, and I was talking about this yesterday, which is having a job. I always kind of trash having like a regular corporate job at a multi-billion dollar corporation, but it's actually not so bad. Like you have one boss, right. you work from nine to five, you don't really work eight hours, you work about two or three hours and you leave your work in the office most of the time. But like when you're an entrepreneur or even doing a side hustle or even, you know, trying to master your life, you can't leave your work in the office. Your, your, your employees are your bosses. Your investors are your bosses. Your partners are your bosses. Your customers are your bosses. So you're caught, you, it's not like you have one boss when you're an entrepreneur. People think, oh, I have no boss when I have an entrepreneur. It's the opposite. Everyone is your boss when you're an entrepreneur. That's right. You're the bottom of the totem pole when you're an entrepreneur. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not, you're not the hierarchical leader anymore. You're, you're at the bottom. And, and so you kind of point to a whole nother way that you can um, really challenge yourself and be uncomfortable 
during lockdown or during this period is to start that side hustle and develop the emotional awareness and character to be an entrepreneur. So I think entrepreneurship, you know, one way I look at that is um, it's like a growth engine to start a business and to, you know, to recruit a team and to, you know, share passion and a vision with them and to show up every day authentically, you know, admitting you don't have all the answers, recognizing that you're not perfect. So you, you have to let go of that righteousness and in order to be effective as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneurial leader, you have to trust your team. And that takes courage to, to get out of the way. And courage, trust, and respect are the first of the seven leadership commitments. That foundation, if you have a team that courageously approaches uh, risk and uh, is able to be, you know, uh, have crucial conversations and is humble and transparent, that develops really, really deep level of trust. And from trust, we get more integrity. Now we're getting up into really, you know, using David Hawkins scale, we're getting up in some higher, higher positive energy um, states. And now the team is, is clicking at, at a positive level. You don't have negative nillies dragging the team down, which stops growth and gets the team stuck. Most teams are mediocre because they allow negativity to flourish at some level and it, and it runs rampant. But when you build a team on courage and trust, then it leads to great respect. From there, right, a team can move mountains. Define courage. You know, my feeling about courage is that it's action that comes from the heart. And because of that, sometimes it's very uncomfortable. Then your head is saying no, right? But your, your brain is is fear-based, it's wired for fear and it's wired for negativity. It's five times as likely to be negative as positive. Your heart is wired for love. Core actually means heart, the C-O-R. It's a French word that means heart. So courage is action that stems or flows or is informed by the heart. And oftentimes it's painful, oftentimes it requires uh, bold action, um, but it, it's not it's not physical, right? Like phys I'm not talking about physical courage when I talk about courage, right? A lot of times physical courage is brashness. You know, like what you see with, you know, the, the Antifa or the violent protesters. It takes zero courage at all to run at a cop car and throw in a Molotov cocktail. That is not courage, right? That is just fear-based, you know, like frothiness. And that's dangerous, right? Courage is where it comes from the heart. And then you merge, uh, another word I love that kind of is synonymous is Kokoro. And we use that term for that 50-hour event I talked about. Kokoro is a Japanese kind of martial term that means to merge your heart and your mind into your actions. And that's courage. You know, it, it's very interesting you say that because a lot of times people ask me, how do I find a passion? And, you know, side by side with that question is, just because I have a passion, you know, they seem to think that there's a disconnect between what they can monetize and how they can make a living to support their family and what their passions are. And I always look at it almost exactly how you were saying, like, where does your heart connect with your mind? Mm -hmm. So I might, I might say to myself, um, you know, I love, you know, back in the nineties, I loved making websites. I thought this was a new mm -hmm. entertainment medium and I, I, I wanted to be a creative in life. And that was my, that would, was what made me excited. Like I would dream about it. Like 
new things I can do with this new technology, the the web. And, and then I realized, okay, other companies are going to start needing websites. So that's coming from the mind that I'm making a rational deduction based on what I'm seeing in society. And I was able to merge the two. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'll make websites for other companies and charge for it. And that's where the heart meets the mind. Mm-hmm. So I was able to make a living, but it doesn't even have to be so direct. Like I might have a passion about some type of business strategy. And it might be the case that buying laundromats in every major city in the country, mm-hmm. it might be intellectually the way I fulfill this passionate idea about I have about some sort of business strategy. Mm-hmm. And that's another way the heart can meet Absolutely. the mind. Right. But but it is important for the heart to meet the mind or else you'll just be second best to the people who are implementing that strategy of heart meeting mind. Agree 100%. And if you're just operating from the mind, you're, you're going to be stuck in ego. And ego is tricky. It's a lot of traps and you know it's very seductive and it'll lead you um, down the wrong road. But the heart like tampers the ego, and you know the ego is not bad. It just needs to be tamed and and then brought into line. You know, and the heart's the way to do that. I think a lot of the you know back to our earlier discussion, a lot of the institutions, much of the energy they were seeing is all like it's all either intellectual, like this, the the elite intellectuals one side, or you know thug intellectualism, which is more of like a social movement, right? Like like a communist social movement, you have one elite, Karl Marx or Hegel or some of these guys, and then you have the movement, which is basically uh, a collective mindset, but it's all from the head, right? It's just this thought. It's a story that things are going to be better, right? And we saw how that worked out with Mao Zedong. We saw how that worked out with Stalin. You know, tens of millions of people dead. But everyone uh, who was brainwashed with that idea in the beginning thought it was a good idea, but it wasn't coming from the heart because the idea was one of separation. It was one of us better than them or, or someone else is the cause of my problems. Anytime you have that dualistic perception of uh, I'm right, you're wrong, or I'm better than they, my ideas are better than their ideas, or um, someone else is the cause of my suffering, then you're operating out of ego and it's negative and it's gonna lead to destruction. But what if my ideas really are better than the other person's? You, you can go, um, your ideas can be better, but inclusive, right, of the other person. Mm. So that's kind of like the, you know, another one of my teachers is Ken Wilber in Integral Theory. And the idea here is that human beings evolve through stages of development. And this is well proven in transpersonal psychology. And all the stages up to... Uh, integral or below integral integration um, are stages of some form of separation. Even and so, like the words I use, and I, I have this in the first chapter of the book, are the plateaus. So the first plateau is is basically survival thinking. You know, so you, a lot of people in this country are operating out of that survival mode, right? And it's very very egotistical. It is um, you know built upon you know, just basically day by day, just, you know, grabbing or taking, you know, what you can to, to get to the next day, you know what I mean? So paycheck to paycheck, or, you know, I'm living on the dole, or, you know, I, I require the government service. That's like survival mode thinking. And it tends to be very fear-based. The second stage of development, I call the, the, um, the protector. And this is someone who wants to protect the status quo. This is very, this is ego and ethnocentric. So like, um, 
an intense um, nationalism is the protector. I want to protect this idea of make American great again, or I want to protect you know, my ideal. You see this played out like my football team is better than your football team, and people will go to fisticuffs over that. That's the second stage of development. And, and about maybe 30 to 40% of America is in that second stage. The third stage is, um, is the achiever. You know, so you and, and, and we, we have doses of all these stages, but if you bear with me, I'll explain how they all come together. So the achiever is the entrepreneur, is someone who wants to go out and change the world and create the, the first website development company. And it's all good. And so the achiever has a dose of world centrism, especially now because we can serve the world through the internet and, and uh, because of the connectivity. But we um, can also get pulled down into protecting our status quo, or like you said, my idea is better than your idea, you know, which is not optimal. It's not the highest form of uh, human thinking. The fourth stage is the equalizer, and this is kind of what we see playing out. You see equalizers fighting protectors. The equalizers are like the green meme, you know, uh, new age spirituality, um, environmental activism, that type of stuff. And you might think, well, this is pretty evolved, Mark. And the problem with the equalizer is they demonize everyone who's not an equalizer. They demonize the achiever, right? The corporate uh, entrepreneur. Uh, they demonize the protector, right? As being, you know, either re religious, all right, or, you know, just part of the government system. And a lot of times the equalizer is actually operating out of survival mode or protecting their status quo, right? So it still separates. It's still a me versus you, us versus them. The only uh, stage of development where we grow out of that, finally, is the integrator or integral level. And this is um, where suddenly you're able to see the survivor, the protector, the achiever, and the equalizer in you playing out in your life. And you begin to integrate the positive aspects of those while eradicating the negative or the shadow aspects of those. Because your shadow side, your emotional shadow will show up differently at each one of these levels, right? So each one of these stages of development has a positive and a negative correlate. So you, you begin to work on eradicating the negative while enhancing the positive, and then you begin to integrate wholly. So from this perspective, here's where this is so important. The leader, we call this, I call this a world-centric leader. The world-centric leader now can suddenly take the perspective of the first plateau survivor or the second plateau protector or the third plateau achiever or the fourth plateau equalizer and not demonize them, not judge them, not be righteous about it, but find a solution that is more integrative or more whole, that is inclusive. So as an entrepreneur achiever, you can say operating from the integral fifth plateau level, stepping into your third plateau achiever self, you can look at your ideas and say, this is a good idea doesn't mean that other person's got a bad idea. That would be a judgment. But this idea, you know, could be, I can include him or her or that in my worldview and not have to look at it as like a, um, a threat, right? Or even something that you need to deal with, right? You just let that energy go. In conversations, communications, in relationships, in leadership, this is profound because you're going to have people on your team who are operating at all of these different stages of development. Some of them stabilized, some of them triggered. And you're going to be able to navigate that much more effectively because you're going to be able to say, oh, yeah, this person's operating out of their, you know, their, their second plateau protector ego. 
and they're they're just going to dig their heels in because they're protecting this pet belief. They haven't really had to challenge that idea. So let me, you know, do an Akita move and just allow that energy to pass by me. And I'm going to open up a better question, open up a better conversation with a better question that's going to evolve this current conversation up the, up to, you know, world centric again. Right. I, I love, I love this perspective. And can I give you a, a like a specific case relevant to today? Sure. So let's say, let's say, I mean, you can take either side of this, but let's say right now in the media, today's headlines are there's a second surge of cases, particularly happening in states that reopened earlier. Uh, and so you go one level deeper and you, and you know, my question for people who ask me this is, okay, yes, there are more cases of coronavirus, but there's also more testing of coronavirus. So more testing is going to show more cases, but show me maybe is that what, what is a better indicator? Like show, it, it, it seems like daily new hospitalizations are going down still, or daily new deaths are going down still. So I'm not sure. It seems like actually there's not a second surge. It seems like things are going well and, but they'll still argue and, and sometimes even get like violent about it. Now, normally I just ignore, but let's say it's someone working for you or working closer to you or a friend you admire or you, you want to have admire you, how would you approach this? Because this does seem to be a divide in the nation. Mm-hmm. Is there a second surge happening? Is there isn't, or isn't there, you know, here's what, yeah. one people have data to show this, but yeah. my point is that data is meaningless. Like how do I become an integrator here? This is um, such a great question. This is not easy work, but it's worth it. Uh, I'll start with, you know, kind of Gandhi's quote, be the change you want to see in the world. So I'm not suggesting that awareness of this, at this level of of being an integrated, you know, world-centric leader that you are, I believe, firmly, that um, you're going to go out and change these people. You're not necessarily going to change them, James, as much as you want to. You can't change anybody until they're ready to change. What you can do is appreciate their perspective, allow them to have the perspective, but don't engage with them from the level where they are, because that's just going to lead to, you know, fire on fire, right? So don't let this individual suck you down to their protector, you know, second plateau. You remain grounded in the integrator world-centric, which has great care and concern for all human beings. And so from that perspective, you love this person. And you say to them, you know, I really value your viewpoint. And I don't agree with it, but I really value it. And, you know, if, you, if you're open to or interested in learning um, some other perspectives, then here's some resources for you. And then you disengage. That's how I would handle that. Because otherwise, it's force on force. And I'm not, you know, I'm just perpetuating the same cycle of, you know, of, I guess, even violence in communication sense. That, that's really important. So, like, in this case, it might be something like, okay, you know, looking at it, second level, maybe you're legitimately afraid of more of a surge right. in coronavirus. So you're attaching to data that suggests right. I need to stay in a little bit longer. I need to um, keep my family protected. So I respect that. The other thing is maybe it's partisan, which on the one hand sounds evil, but maybe they are legitimately afraid for whatever reason right. of one side or the other coming into power. Whoever is president hardly ever really affects our daily lives, right. but they're afraid of, for, for one reason or the other. So acknowledging that, and then just simply 
maybe presenting data and saying, you know, I could be wrong. This is the data I'm seeing. Would love to see data that integrates these ideas to have a solution. Right. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be neat to say, hey, we all have a different, let's say your team, right? Uh, your core team and, and people are starting to bicker about this or, or you, want, you know that everyone is, is confused as you is to, you know, to have a little Zoom meeting and say, hey, this is, this is what's happening in the world and it's really, really interesting. And I thought it'd be fun to have a conversation looking at all sides. Like, let's look at the data. One of the, here's, you know, one of my friends is a Navy SEAL doctor. You know, there's a great combination for you. He's an MD, former Navy SEAL. And um, he was have, doing like a little podcast video with a friend and they were talking about, they were going through the WHO website. This, this is, I think you and I might've even talked about this, but I think it's worth repeating. And they're like, hey, look at this. Um, so here is um, the SARS virus. Year before SARS, look at the flu. Look how many people die from the flu. And now during the years that the SARS virus came out, there's almost no flu deaths, but SARS is up here. Mm -hmm. Why is that? And then they looked at like, here's MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. The year before MERS, look at all these flu deaths. The year MERS came, look, very, very few flu deaths. Does that mean fewer people died from the flu? Absolutely not. Those people died from the flu, but they got categorized as MERS. Same thing's happening with COVID, right? When, when you look back two to three years from now, you're going to see that flu deaths last year were really high. Flu deaths in 2020 were really low because they all got wrapped up into COVID. So I, when I look at that, I'm like, wow, that's not a conspiracy theory probably. That's just statisticians doing what they do. And you, we both have heard stories about, you know, how, and it's even come out in the press about how people are classifying these is kind of bogus because everybody who's dying, you know, in a hospital, you know, and they're infected, they're being classified as death by COVID, but maybe they died of a heart attack or some other cause, you know what I mean? Maybe the COVID triggered some other cause of death because they were morbidly, right, ready to die anyways. So the whole thing, having conversations like that without getting drawn into the negative energy or the positionality of I'm right, you're wrong, or this is a conspiracy, because I agree with you. I think, you know, politicians are driven for power, but I believe as, in a general sense, they all think they're doing the right thing from their perspective, right? From their positions. So to cut them a break, right? There, it's not like some evil conspiracy that Gavin Newsom has, you know, made it harder to reopen in California than, you know, let's say Wyoming, which has zero cases or whatever. He really believes he's doing the right thing. I've even met Gavin. He's a good guy. You know, I don't agree with the principles, but, um, I can cut him that slack and just try to understand his perspective. You know, he's coming to the perspective of trying to save every single person. Right. You know, whereas I would come from the perspective is look at the economic cost of shutting down all the restaurants that are never going to reopen. And what's the toll going to be on that in terms of suicide and, and mental health issues and how many people are going to die from the economic shutdown. I wonder if they'll ever do that study, you know? Right. And, and do you get frustrated when people push back on that? Because those are reasonable questions. I ask those questions as well. I, 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 I do, but I try not to engage in that line of discussion with people who aren't willing to listen to it because it's fruitless. So, so I want to um, 
I, again, I just love all the questions you ask in the book and it's kind of even how you're, uh, uh, you know, approaching your philosophy in this podcast, mm -hmm. but like in your exercise number six, it's a, it's the chapter curiosity, innovation, and simplicity. Mm -hmm. Your first question is, you know, uh, or it's not quite a question, but it's an activity. Get curious about something new that will challenge your brain to expand its creativity muscles. Uh, make a list of things you're interested in learning or are passionate about and want to explore. Uh, then put them through your model to call the list down, blah, blah, blah. And so uh, if people are in kind of a standard routine or they're just sucked up into fear or the media or what's going on with their friends and family, it's that kind of pushes you know, takes up all the real estate in the brain. And how can someone, is there kind of a, almost a pre-exercise to say, Hey, I'm going to take a step back and they might not even know what they're curious about. Like they might not even know how to think about that. Mm -hmm. Like how can someone figure out what they're curious about? How can they be curious about curiosity? curiosity? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's a great question. In fact, that would be the question I would uh, start with. How can I be curious about curiosity, how I can get more curious. I love your, um, you know, I, I'm a journaler like you are, uh, and I love the fact that you've got this practice of, of thinking of 10 new ideas a day. That's powerful. That is a curiosity uh, or creativity uh, uh, engine or, or tool. For me, um, the practice of mindfulness is extraordinary, right? It leads to uh, more creativity. And then that um, will lead to answering the, that question, right? So that you're right, and it's insightful for you to think that there's a preparatory practice. So let me describe mindfulness as the way I understand it. We live kind of in like two worlds simultaneously. One is the world of content, right? This is the world of thought, thinking, you know, and those thoughts get elaborated into these dramatic dramas and stories, and we, you know, we just repeat them in these loops day after day. Most of humanity is emerged merged with their thoughts. They identify with thoughts as them, right? Even, even your sense of self, like who is James Altucher, is just a bundle of thoughts. It really isn't real from the perspective of the second aspect of you that's happening simultaneously, and that's the, the world of context. And the world of context is, um, at the broadest level, is your pure, pure awareness. Like, you know, awareness that is aware that you're alive, awareness that is aware that you're thinking. And in our training, we call this your witness, right? So mindfulness is to sit and just begin to observe your thoughts until you begin to separate. A, a space opens up between the thought and the observation of the thought or the witnessing of the thought. And suddenly you recognize these two aspects of reality. And you begin to then identify more with context or witnessing than with the thought. What this does uh, from a neuroplastic standpoint to your brain is it begins to stimulate and open up the right hemisphere. Because the right hemisphere is not a thinker, right? It, the right hemisphere doesn't do your thinking. What it does is feed patterns into the left hemisphere. It feeds, uh, you know, subconscious. It picks up... Uh, it picks up information from your biome, your, your little belly brain and your heart, your heart mind. And so your right brain is where you get the information from your whole mind. And then, you, then it'll feed this to the left hemisphere, which will then construct a rational linear time-based thought, which usually has a future or present 
uh, orientation to it, whereas right hemisphere is all present, right here, right now, what you see is what you get. So this practice of mindfulness, and there are other practices that, that will help with this, begins to open up and activate the right hemisphere of your brain and, and allow information to flow more freely across the corpus callosum so that you're using you know, the whole brain simultaneously. The right hemisphere is associated with creativity. So if you want to get curious, begin to think from the right hemisphere of your brain. And what you'll see through mindfulness practice is, is the patterns that arise in your left hemisphere thinking. And so you'll begin to curate the quality and the quantity and the directionality of the thought. So that's one way. So now you're reducing the number of thoughts you have and you're improving the quality of the thoughts you have by asking better questions and directing your attention at what you need to do and what you want to do for longer and longer periods of time. That's through concentration power. But simultaneously, because you're able to pick up the, the information that's coming from your heart, which is you know, the home of your soul, that's what's going to tell you what you're passionate about. And what you're passionate about and what you need to be doing on this planet, right? What you're calling or what the Buddhists would call your dharma, that information resides in your heart. And so mindfulness practice will allow you to hear or sense or pick up imagery of things that you're passionate about and what you need to be doing. And that's what's going to inform what you should get curious about and what you should learn or do next. Like, what are you curious about right now in, in, in today's day and age, about, whether it's about your business or your family or the, the world or, yeah. or your career? Well, that's a great question. I'm getting really curious about um, really going much deeper now on my, in my education around um, neuroscience and a lot of these things that we've just been talking about and consciousness and meditation and how to how a human being can evolve to his highest his or her highest and best self right and so i'm i'm considering i'm strongly considering going back to get my doctorate um in this kind of area right and to do some uh, to take my thinking and learning to the next level you know i'm very much of a like you james a learner and there's no there there, right? There's, there's no end to the learning. And some of that learning is, you know, through just deep introspection and meditation. And some of it is, is combining a, a deep intellectual pursuit like academic pursuit or just, you know, I, I read like you just a massive number of books. And I want to go deep on a topic so that I can really move the conversation forward, you know, for our culture in a more positive direction. So I'm passionate about that and, and moving that direction fast. I'm also um, moving the direction of simplicity. You know, I, I'm not like a wealthy man by any stretch of imagination. I served as a Navy SEAL for 20 years and pretty much gave up that path. But the last five years has brought me, you know, five homes and this and that and uh, two businesses. And so I'm like, oh, yeah. And the ego says, that's all good, right? And my spirit says, watch out, right? Because there's attachment there. And simplicity is the way to go. And I know that you agree with that because you, you literally were homeless for a while and how liberating and freeing that is. And so I think one of the basic human soul drives is toward simplicity and freedom. So I'm exploring that. Like, how can I move toward more simplicity in my business? Even like um, I was talking the other day with a friend, I'm strongly considering, in fact, I will. It's just about the matter of time giving up my CEO roles in all of my organizations because, you know, I'm just not passionate about that structural 
stuff anymore and it limits my freedom. I'd be happy to give up all my real estate, you know? I'd be happy to walk away from all that stuff. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do anything reckless. I'm just saying that there's, a, there's this drive now to really explore simplicity. And, you know, part of me would just love to hop in a Sprinter van and, you know, just cruise around and do my podcast from there. <laughs> but, but let's say you did that. Like, let's say you sold all your real estate and the benefits of that is that you don't have to put any mental energy into maintaining this real estate right. and, and, and for, you know, that's on a monthly basis, that's on a physical basis, you know, a financial basis. So you have this cash in the bank, which is always nice to sleep with cash in the mm-hmm. bank, knowing you can survive. And then, yeah, going- or Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, exactly, or Bitcoin, and then you don't, you're not tied to the, to the dollar. And, uh, the, and then you get the RV and you, you travel around and, and do the podcast. Have you considered actually doing that? Um, it's, it, it's, a, it's a thought starting to trickle around in the back of my mind. So, so, so the have, answer is yes, I have, but I, I haven't taken any action on it. And, you know, it, it might be that that then, you know, by closing those doors and, and decluttering and simplifying just literally leads you to the next big thing, right? Which is going to be way bigger. It's going to transcend and, but include everything I've done up to my life, but I can't get to there from the system that I've created, right? It's just like Einstein said, you can't solve a problem from the, from the perspective or the system that created the problem. So sometimes you got to legitimately break down your own structure in order to, you know, uh, open up the opportunities for the, the transcendence and the inclusion to occur for the next level of James Altucher or Mark Divine to emerge. I, I honestly think that's what's happening in our society. The, you know, all this fighting and, you know, calls for de, you know, defunding the police. And, you know, we should like, one of my favorite movements is the convention of states, which, you know, if all 50 states sign on to, the, uh, to hold a convention of states, they can hold a constitutional convention and change the constitution. And, you know, if I were uh, king for a day to change the constitution, you know, that would be really cool because we, I would do things differently, right? I would. Well, what would you change? Well, I would, I love the underlying structure of the constitution. It rates very high on, on, I think, on a level of conscious. It's more like I would bring back some fundamental uh, principles and have an agreed upon shared vision for this country because we've lost that, right? The founding fathers had a shared vision for what America looked like and they baked that in the constitution. We've walked away from that long ago. So the country has no vision. It has no strategic plan. And so I would, I would require us to have a shared vision a common vision for our future that, you know, is like 100, 200, 300, 500,000 years out, as best as you can, of course. And then I would um, implement a council of elders, right, where we have wise elders who somehow are proven to be world-centric, heart-centric, you know, have everyone's care and concern, you know, in their minds. And these wise elders would provide input to the uh, elected uh, officials, and then third, I would require that anyone who runs for government pass a character test. <laughs> like they've got to be of a sound mind, sound body, sound character. They've got to represent the health of the, the optimal health of the body politic, the, the citizenry, and they've got to align with the shared vision of the country. You know, it's, it's almost like bringing some basic entrepreneurial ideas, but these, you know, these ideas just got, they just weren't readily available to the founding fathers. They didn't see the need for them right away because they thought they just had it. Maybe they were the wise elders and their vision, you know, but over, over the years, they've kind of gotten lost. So we have to build that into the document. 
Man, I'd love to have a whole podcast just about that because I've been thinking about that quite a a bit lately. You know, towards towards the end of the book, you talk about radical focus. And I sort of want to close with that because I think it's an important concept. But describe what what you mean by it because focus is a tricky issue. It sure is. So I I use that term uh, because, you know, like a Navy SEAL, a sniper has to have radical focus, but a sniper doesn't operate alone. He's got a spotter. The spotter is actually, you know, this is kind of like the difference between uh, uh, mindfulness and concentration training. So the sniper is practicing concentration. He's looking at just one thing, the target, and waiting for the opportune moment to pull the trigger. Whereas the spotter is actually practicing practicing mindfulness. He's he's focused on the context of everything else, the wind, the wind speed, the wind direction, uh, movement around the area, any danger. And so, the sniper has radical focus, but is, if you look at the spotter as the other part of his brain, his right side of his brain, is also intimately aware of what's going on around. So what I mean by radical focus, let me break this down to like practical. Develop, we develop the skills of deep, deep concentration and built upon a process for knowing what the right thing is, the right target, your most important target is to get to get done. And you radically focus on that with laser precision and you stay, you develop the concentration power to stay focused on that until it's done. And then you move on to the next thing. And if it's a major project that requires multiple steps, you break it down into the smallest achievable step that you can take and complete today. And then you focus on that until you get it done. Now, I know most people will have two or three of these, but oftentimes when you really, you know, if you're thoughtful about it and you ask the right questions, there's really only one like critical, most important target every day that if you get that done, you will be demonstrably moving the dial toward success in your mission in life. So like what's, what's, what's something that you, you know, like yesterday, what was the one thing you focused on to get done to move yourself forward? Well, this, uh, this is a podcast week. So yesterday was a podcast, right? Just one, <laughs> mm-hmm. just one. Um, now, normally I'll do two or three. Now, I've got two today. So my most important target today is also podcasts, but I've got two of them. Uh, so you won't feel bad though. Oh, I've got these two podcasts. I'm not doing writing or I'm not doing as much no, working no, out. No, but or... that's my most important target. I'm not saying that's not, that's all I do. But if I wanted to train, I don't feel, I don't regret. Like if I, if I just did the two podcasts and I trained for the rest of the day, I'm, I'm good, I'm done, right? Because that was my most important target. But I've got extra time today, so I'll be doing some writing. This is a creative week and I'll be doing some writing. Um, but but the, well, there's something interesting there, which is that like a lot of times people say, well, I got to do these two podcasts, but then they'll feel bad. Like they're not doing the 10 other things they'd like to be doing. I think it's, a, it's second level thinking to say, hey, it's okay to focus on one thing today. It means I'm going to sacrifice other things. Right. I can't regret that. Exactly. Regrets, you know, just suck you back down into negative territory. Um, I think, uh, James, that most people just do way too many things. They try to take on way too many things, and so they do them poorly. One of the sayings we had in the SEALs is the way you do anything is the way you do everything. So if you're doing too many things poorly, then you're even doing the important things poorly, like your relationships or taking care of your health or, right? Whatever it is. Yeah, no. So, so focus on the most important target and do it with all your energy, 100% focus. Knock it out of the park. And if you do that day in and day out, you'll, you'll end up being extraordinary. 
if you try to do too many things and you do a mediocre job on all those things, then you'll never be extraordinary. You're just going to be common like everybody else. So we got to learn to laser focus on the right targets at the right time for the right reasons. Get them done with all of your heart and mind concentrated on that effort the best you can do and try to improve that every day through a process of improvement. And so that means like for a podcast, like there's preparation, just like there's preparation, there's visualization, there's thinking about what you want, there's some research. It's not like just an hour and a half or two hours of chat. And then there's the post podcast. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to spend a lick of time editing or doing it. I have other people do all that just like you do, but I am going to um, recapitulate it. I'm going to think back what went well, what could I improve? Is there some follow-up with James, you know, make some notes, maybe send, you know, a couple emails out and then, you know, so there, you know, a podcast could be four hours of work if you, if you put it together and that requires a lot of focus and concentration. So people take too many things on and then they regret when they don't get the whole task done and then they feel bad if they get, you know, if the feedback is not great or if they didn't do a great job. But I think it's a great point, though, to take a bigger perspective and say, hey, if I just do this one thing today very well, and if I have that philosophy every day, then it doesn't matter what I might have missed. Over the years, the benefits of doing one thing every day as well as I can with this radical focus those will compound rather than just simply add to what I've, a a list of things I've done in life. It'll compound to make me a better person, a better influence in society and in my family and so on. And that radical focus pays off. It compounds. It does. And then the, the, the awareness or the mindful part of you is guess what, while you're doing that, um, things happen, right? Requests are going to come in, interruptions will happen. And so you have to be mindful and deal with them. I'm not saying being a jerk and ignore them, but be mindful and not reactive, right? And so uh, if someone came and made a request, you know, my old reactionary would self would be like, yeah, sure, yeah, uh, let's talk about that later. And I just agreed to something. Um, whereas now I have a set of focusing questions that I've learned to say. And the first one is, hey, let me reflect on it. I can't, I'll think about it later. Right now I'm focusing on this. And then, or I'll say, thank you, uh, now's not a good time, right? We can, we can, you know, ask me again some other time. Then I'll ask, you know, what, what action right now is going to get me closer to my vision or back on track, right? And so then I'll, I'll ask, answer that question and then I'll come back to that. Um, so again, like we talked about and what you're alluding to with the book and the questions, like I think you know, the quality of your life is going to be dictated by the quality of the questions you ask and then the quality of your mind and your ability to, to create that space between the content and the context, the thoughts and the witness, so that you can, in the SEALs we called it PBTA, so that anytime something hits, like COVID, if it's a big thing like COVID or, or social unrest, or even if it's just a small thing, like your mother-in-law calling and nagging on you, you don't immediately spin into reaction. You pause, that's the P, you breathe into it. We talked about the breath uh, triggering the parasympathetic, you know, the arousal condition slowing down. And now your brain is slowing down and you're connecting back to the witness and you're like, oh yeah, I can see how my, I was just getting spun up by my mother-in-law and it was activating that loop and I'm not gonna go there. So I breathe into it and then I think about that. It's like, okay, what, 
what can I do right now? What can I say that's going to come from love? It's going to be the world-centric fifth plateau version of Mark. And then I'll deliver that communication. And I take responsibility for how it lands, right? Not just how it's delivered. And then I act, I deliver it, right? And then I deploy what the SEALs or the military calls the OODA loop. I observe how that went. Oh, it didn't go so well. She's now spinning out of control, right? So I observe and I reorient myself to that which means I you know, kind of move my position mentally. I think it through, I take another breath, and I think about what's you know, the appropriate response now and make a decision on that. That's the D in the OODA loop, and then I act. So PBTA and the OODA loop have been really powerful kind of mental models for me. Well, you know, Mark Devine, author of Staring Down the Wolf, I, I, Seven Leadership Commitments That Forge Lead Teams. I feel this one book is, you could really do like, like a month-long seminar <laughs> just exploring True. all the points of this book. And it'll make people a better person. So I, I've, I've read the book twice now. Thanks. Um, it's really great. I really resonate with a lot of the principles, but I learned a lot as well. And it was great to read about your story. Definitely come on the podcast again. There's lots of stuff to talk about. Where should people find you? you know, in, in life. <laughs> in life. Well, I'm at my training center in Carlsbad, California. Come on by. No, I know you can't do that. Um, markdivine.com. That's spelled D-I-V-I-N-E.com is my personal website. What a great name, by Thanks. the way. Is that your real last name? That is name? my real last name. I know. It's pretty awesome. It's like if you're in a bar and you're like, yeah, hey, my name's Jackie. And then um, you're like, well, my, I'm Mark Divine. <laughs> like that's got to be a clincher right there. Right. <laughs> Mic drop. Boom. Yeah, so markdivine.com, um, uh, Unbeatable Mind is the training, unbeatablemind.com. So the, the, the kind of like all, all this training I've been talking about is part of our training regimen for evolving leaders and teams. And if that hardcore, you know, special ops, military, physical training sounds interesting, that's sealfit.com. And of course, I'm at Twitter at RealMarkDivine, or not Twitter, but Instagram. I don't tweet. I think my team might send some tweets out now and again, but I've seen how dangerous that is. I used to be a good, good uh, kind of an associate or, or peer with Coach Greg Glassman. Man, he tweeted, he tweeted, what is it, tweeted? Tweeted. Literally, I, I think it's like six or seven letters. <laughs> and it was the end of his career. Like he had to step down as CEO of CrossFit. Wow. Oh, yeah. That, that was just uh, the other yeah, day, just, yesterday. Just this weekend. Well, and J.K. Rowling is going through that. She wrote a whole essay of how just liking a tweet by accident, you know, and let's say you believe her, like she liked, she, she was doing research for a crime novel and she was studying one person who had been, you know, beaten or hurt or whatever. And um, she liked instead of screenshotted, like normally she right. screenshots tweets for later research, she liked by accident. And that created this huge <laughs> thing that she's still going Amazing. through where people are like burning Harry Potter books right. now. Yeah, we're in we're in the assess character assassination age, you know, for some reason. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, Mark, thanks so much. And uh, you know, I look forward to the next time. I always <laughs> feel like it's an ongoing conversation. And I really uh, appreciate you coming on and, and doing this. Yeah, no, I appreciate you, James. It's been great. Uh you're doing great work. And let me know how we can uh, serve you further or any of your tribe. Hoo yeah. Thank you. Take care. Mm-hmm.